talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Pfizer is asking Health Canada to approve their COVID-19 vaccination for kids 5 to 11 years old. I say only if they have been nice and not naughty. And oh. then maybe by Christmas. Oh. Here's Scott oh. Thompson. Where does he get that? Does he get that from his mother? What? What? That's not. That's not nice. That's not the Canadian way. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Will on the board. And uh, as Kurt mentioned, Ted and Diana in the newsroom. And after the 4.30 news, we'll be joining us for the big round table. Uh, hope you can hang around for that. Another jam-packed show for today. Poll question of the day for today. Uh, are you in favor of the four-day work week? Well, everybody is. 64% say, yeah, but that's only if you're going to pay me for five. And, of course, the proposal yesterday didn't say that. It was just, so how do you condense the work since you're working at home, doing it over, which is, you know, really what we're doing now, what we've been doing for the last, uh, i got to look, 80-some-odd weeks, 82, 83 weeks. So is that something that can be regulated at the government, or is that just we're already seeing that in action uh, with uh, businesses uh, the way we are. But sure, if you want to give me five days pay and, and I'll only work four, that'd be absolutely fabulous. But unfortunately, I don't think that was part of the suggestion yesterday. And speaking of poll questions of the day from yesterday, the Prime Minister's trip to Kamloops, about tre- was it about truth and reconciliation or PR? Public relations, 87% say it was just about PR. Feel free to weigh in on today's poll question on the, of the day on Twitter. You can also send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, we've been talking about vaccinations since as long as I can remember. Uh, you know, it's the new norm, as they say. I, we're up around, I believe it's 87% with the first dose and just a few points below that for uh, the second dose. But that is those that are 12 plus that are eligible to get the vaccine kids have not been eligible to get the vaccine although that is moving forward pfizer and health canada working on that there's they say perhaps by christmas we'll be injecting kids uh but obviously that cohort uh, signifies a great uh, uh share of the population and but but will there be hesitancy as we have seen in the general population for example you know probably 15 percent that won't get it for some reason whether it's medical or or their own personal reason, will we say the same numbers in the kids or perhaps a bit more hesitancy? Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute. And with us now, Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I've been well. It's been a little little while, but it's nice to be back on chatting with you. So are we going to see, you know, it was interesting. We were talking about the vaccine passport earlier and, and pretty much, you know, you were going to download the vaccine passport. If you have a vaccine, obviously it would make sense. Are we going to see parents who are vaccinated necessarily going to vaccinate their kids or will we see more hesitancy among this age group? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing is that you need that that parental guidance for this group, right? So we're, we're surveying a group of, of parents about, the the kids that they would vaccinate and and luckily we were able to um get over 800 parents in this most recent survey across the country uh who had children who were in that age group and we asked them will you get it uh when it's available or are you going to wait 
Or are you just saying, no, that's not something that you're willing to do? We've got 51% off the bat who say that they're, they're willing and they would get their, their child vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives you an idea of the, the initial rush wouldn't be a problem. We would get a lot of children vaccinated very quickly. There's about one in five, the 18%, who say that they're not against vaccinating their children, but they would just wait. So they're happy to let people go first, which is something that we saw with adults as well. Um, so it's 50-20 with, with this, the children. But when we started doing this last year for adults, it was about 40-40. So 40% wanted it right away and 40% were going to wait. And they were just kind of waiting for some, some evidence and, and some experiences. So I think that's understandable. It's a part of, of human nature to not necessarily want to go first. And we're seeing a little bit of that. The, the challenge, I think, would be the 32% who say that they're either not going to vaccinate their child yeah. or they're, they're really not sure. Um, and from our research, you can infer that, you know, about half of that not sure group, they, they just don't want to say no yet. Um, so that's close to three in 10 who say that um, they're not going to have their child vaccinated. So it, it will be an interesting, you know, six months or so to watch, but we're starting out with relatively high levels of enthusiasm. Uh, 23% saying no, no matter what. I mean, that's 77% of the kids vaccinated, uh, presuming the other ones are going to get vaccinated. So that is, it seems to be, we might be, we might be having a little lower rate with the kids than we do with the adults. Yeah. And I think that largely that's okay. Um, I, I think that what we're looking at now is obviously the kids in this age group really aren't at the highest risk of impacts where yeah. the people that we're worried about, obviously the unvaccinated, which is an issue unto itself, but those people who are, you know, in the later stages of uh, they're in their seventies or eighties, or they have a health issue. And the, the issue for them is really just exposure regardless of, you know, if they've had their, their vaccination. And it's just another layer of protection. I think we've, We've, you mentioned that the data is for the, the 12 plus age group, and we've been slowly lowering that bar. You know, we were looking at data for 18 plus and we got to 80%, and then we moved it down to 12, and, and now we're trying to get back up to 80% uh, everywhere with that group. And now we're going to be looking at that 5 to 11. So I think as long as you get to that 85, 90% with the 12 plus age group, there's right. less pressure on, on the kids, and every little bit helps, I think, at that point. Um, and how are we feeling about boosters, Dave? Are we as equal, e- equally as eager to grab the booster? Yeah, so that's, that's one of those ones where you have to, you have to uh, net out the people who aren't going to be vaccinated. So that's about 10% of the 18-plus sample who say that they're not going to get vaccinated. So we asked the people left over, and we said, you know, you've already received one or two doses of, uh, would you be willing to get a third one if that's what health officials say? What you see is pretty high levels of enthusiasm. 62% say, yeah, give me the booster right away. They're, they're ready to go. Another 20% are in that hesitant group. So you've got 82% who say they're willing to get one, just 9% saying outright that they don't want a booster shot. Um, and those, those do tend to be younger people. If you look at the 18 to 24 group, 15% of them compared to that 9% say they won't get it. Uh, so older people are really on board, and 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 overall, I think the, the vaccinated are are largely willing to get a third if if that's what's necessary. 
Those numbers seem incredible, Dave, like incredibly high, considering at the beginning, you know, people were thinking, oh, we get 60, 70 percent. This will be great. How do we compare to other places in the world? I mean, it's quite astounding, is it not? I mean, Canadians should be proud. Yeah, we really should. You know, it was interesting when um, there was a lot of criticism when people would go on and check the the national rates and Canada was kind of trailing behind and... That was really but that was usually a, that was usually a supply issue. Once we got yeah. it, we took off. Yeah, that was a, a little bit of a slow start, and then once it was available, people have been really, um, despite what you continue to read and see with the, the vaccination protests and, and the people who don't want mandates and that type of thing. Those are a separate issue. Largely, you know, you've got eighty-two percent of of people twelve and over across the country who are vaccinated. I believe we're in the the top five in terms of nations. Um, I don't have that handy, but really, and if you look at what happened in the United States, who, you know, people were, were lauding the U.S. in the early days, and we passed them in the summer and really never looked mm. back, and and now you've got 82% of people who are vaccinated saying, yeah, if, if we need to increase immunity one more time, uh, they would be willing to do that. So I think it's, despite the problems that we do have, certainly in some areas and some regions, uh, the country has done done very well from a public health perspective and, and uh, are really willing to kind of pitch in and do their part. Dave Krasinski with us, Research Director with the Angus Reid Institute, talking about the next cohort to get vaccinated, that being kids 5 to 11 with the Pfizer once it gets approved by Health Canada. Dave, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Dr. Omar Khan is with us, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto and a medicine by design investigator. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, thanks. So your thoughts, I guess this is the day uh, or or the time a lot of people have been waiting for when, of course, Pfizer uh, uh, sending its information to Health Canada and the approval process is beginning. What are your thoughts as we start to see more and more uh, effort being made to vaccinate our kids? I think it's an important step forward because... We had this large population of people who are unvaccinated, children under 12. And if we look at the cases of COVID right now, that's a very large group of people who are currently infected. And they're also susceptible to getting infected and spreading it. So having people vaccinated, especially this growing group of infected people, that just helps us clear the infections. And when you clear that infection, you're not spreading it. So that's really what's going to be helpful to us going forward. When do you think we will actually see uh, this moving forward and kids getting their shot? Well, we know that they apply to the U.S. first with their data. And then I was very happy to see that right after they've done Health Canada as well. So these are fantastic uh, developments. Now, this all really depends on how quickly... Health Canada moves because it's the number of people they have looking and auditing this data. And it's very hard to tell how many people they're putting on this now, but I expect they're putting in a lot of people because they are sensitive to what's happening. We we had a school recently closed, a high school in Etobicoke, so people are aware of this and anything to keep schools open would be, you know, wonderful. Do you expect to hear something by Christmas on this, by by the new year? Some indication definitely by Christmas on, you know, a positive or negative note, but likely positive given all the data that's been coming out so far. 
Uh, that being said, we've seen hesitancy, uh, although Ontario has some tremendous numbers for vaccination. Uh, Canada, right the way across the country, we're, we're in, the, uh, in the high 80s for the first dose and, and the second one right behind it. Do you expect to see more hesitancy when it comes to the parents uh, administering the vaccine or letting their kids get it? I hope not. And the reason is that the, they had to do the clinical trial once again for this age group, and that's very important to understand. So they're actually looking once again for any kind of effects that are unexpected. And the fact that they've got this far and that they're applying to our regulatory agency means that everything looked good. So it's not like they extrapolated data. That's very important. They did the trial, and there's actual data from clinical trials to go off of, and that should give people a lot, lot more confidence. Is there any reason to believe that people should be more hesitant with kids than they were, we were, with adults in every other age cohort? No, because when you develop a vaccine in general, you always start off with the older people, Mm -hmm. older populations, that's what it's tested in, and then you just go down in age groups and age groups because no one wants to put children at risk. So by the time it gets to children, it's been in so many adults and young people that you feel, you know, over, you're in a really good spot to finally put this into, into children safely. So this is designed that way on purpose because no one wants to put children at risk at all. Assuming this all moves ahead and we have no reason to believe that it won't and we start uh, vaccination by the new year, uh, say that takes 90 days, six months, what have you, once we get that segment of the population vaccinated, our rates are extremely high. What is that going to look like? Are we still going to see a couple of hundred cases a day? Is that just the new norm? Uh, what do you think we're going to see once we get the entire population vaccinated, or as much as we can, down to five years of age? I think what we'll see, the benefit we'll see the most will be everybody's risk levels starting to be equalized. So we'll be more confident about opening things up because everyone's had the vaccine. That was our move. That's what we needed to do to help people, masks and vaccines. And now that the vaccines are getting rolled out, everybody has now come to this level where, you know, we've done our work and now we have to, you know, move ahead. So that's going to be important. In terms of case numbers, you know, you'll, you'll certainly see some people still present with infection, especially with Delta, but Likely, once again, we'll see that anybody who does will probably have milder symptoms and they probably won't need to go to the hospital. So that's going to be extremely important to see because we have a backlog in our medical system and we need other things and procedures to start being completed. And and we really need to get that going. So this is going to help with all that. But you're right. We might see some breakthroughs still as we do now, but we do see that the vast vast majority of everyone in the hospital are still unvaccinated or just partially vaccinated. We have been talking about this, obviously, for the last year and a half. And I remember talking with experts and everybody was after always concerned after a holiday weekend, two weeks after because of lack of protocol that we'd see a surge. Thanksgiving is a couple of weeks behind us uh, and we really haven't seen anything. And in fact, in Ontario, the numbers continue to go down. I think we're sitting at about 328 new cases today. What are your thoughts on on the holiday season that had just passed and the fact that we're we seem to be holding our own? It's important that. We, we recognize the efforts that people did when they got their vaccines because they are clearing those infections, and when you clear them, you're not transmitting, and that's very good. So this is what's helping us get forward. So this is 
going to be important. Now, when we come to the holiday season, let's also remember that as people are starting to get their second doses, remember the 12 to 16s, 74% of them have one dose, right. and uh, 74% of them have two doses, mm-hmm. and 80% have one dose. So they're still trying to catch up, and in that window, they're still susceptible. And so we just have to be cautious around them to make sure that we still offer them you know, great protection. If you can distance and mask until everybody's up to the same level, then, then we'll be good. But you know, it, let's just be cautiously optimistic. This seems to be going in the right way. Dr. Omar Khan with us, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Earlier on Good Morning Hamilton, Scott Radley was talking with the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. Uh, he started the whole four-day work thing, throwing it out there. But then as you dig down, it's really not about four days. It's taken five and cramming them into four. So Scott asked him to clarify, is his government workers or all workers? No, I, the pilot that I that I talked about in my remarks yesterday to our annual convention would be that I think we should take a, a hard look, like other parts of the world, at a potential four-day work week for various parts of the economy. I, I, I don't know if it'll work here. I mean, that's the bottom line. But we have seen that it's being examined in New Zealand and Spain and Scotland and Iceland. And I think I think what we've learned during this pandemic is that people view work differently today than they once did, trying to strive for the work-life balance that my parents might have might have had through all those years raising me and my brothers and sister. That, that's out of reach for far too many people. And so work has always evolved. It's always improved. I think we have to take a look at all options, and this is what I'm proposing. And I think it, I think it deserves uh, being analyzed for sure. Uh, then Scott went on to ask, "Well, how does this work?" I, I mean, I think the bottom line is we don't know for sure how it would work. We don't know if it'll. Like, I suspect there are parts of the economy where it would be really difficult from a scheduling perspective to go here quickly. But I think there are other parts of the economy where it might work well on a voluntary basis. I mean, I love. I love research and I love getting the facts before especially government makes big decisions. That's why I'm proposing a pilot. I think we we have so much talent here in this province and there are so many different potential ways this could work. That's why we want to take a look at it. I want the evidence. I want the facts. I want the analysis. And then we'll make a responsible decision about how to go forward. Again, I think this is something that industry does, and we're going to introduce you to someone who has done that uh, in their own company. Uh, I don't think this is something you talk about. Uh, you can talk about, and, but but form policy on. I think people want to hear about our government creating jobs. Uh, and, and, you know, we all work too hard. I've been doing this for 36 years. I, I could easily go four days a week, but I don't want to do it on four days' pay. And obviously what the liberal leader was talking about yesterday was, or the other day, was not that. We've certainly seen how we've all adapted and adjusted as a result of working from home or embracing technology. Technology, which has been there for a long time, but forced into it, we are where we are. So is it feasible, a four-day work uh, four-day work week, and how does it all happen? Let's bring in Jamie Savage, founder of the Leadership Agency and is with us now. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us, what is the Leadership Agency? Give us some history here. Yeah, the Leadership Agency, uh, we're headquartered here in Toronto, Ontario, uh, but we are global in scope. So we are a recruitment agency that gets to help, uh, you know, some of the most impressive and disruptive companies of our generation um, make hires. And, you know, we are a recruitment agency that focuses exclusively uh, in the high growth startup tech sector. 
So uh, obviously, lots has changed with a global pandemic. Man, many uh, we're, we're sitting to see this paradigm shift already. Tell us about your schedule, how you've dealt with this. Yeah, so... You know, us being a four-day work week company or a three-day weekend company, however you want to look at that, um, was truly a response to how our industry, um, you know, recruitment is is very complex, it, you know, when it's done right. And we are always dialed in and always connected. We are responding to people's needs and expectations, you know, almost around the clock. And, it, and right. recruitment, it's hard to turn that off. So, you know, we got burnt out very quickly and, and we're a small business, we're agile and we're able to make changes like this. And so we did. And, you know, October 1st, 2020, we were a four-day work week company. So does that mean uh, now, obviously, if you're working around the, the clock and, and, you know, there's many industries, businesses where you need that sort of attention. Are you still basing this on a five day work week? Are they working uh, four days as opposed to five or they're, they're just more at their own uh, schedule and can work and weave and in, in, in do whatever they do at all hours of the day and you get three days off? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. Like, I think that. Um, you know, your your second option is more like what it's like to work at the leadership agency with a four day work week. It's more about um, doing the job and, you know, being really effective. Um, and you know, we had to deploy time management training and, and, you know, tactics to make sure that we were able to do it. We weren't making their lives even harder. Um, and you know, leveraging technology and communication strategies and so on. Um, so it's, you know, we don't track people's hours or their time. We didn't reduce anyone's vacation time. We didn't deduct anyone's salary for this. So we really just empowered our team to do the job, um, be really effective in doing it and having that extra day off. So really, this is less about a four-day work week or three-day work a- a weekend rather than you're on your own. We trust you to do the work. And we're finding out employ- most employees are even more productive. Do your own thing, but you take the three days. Yeah, so in exactly. other words, they're easily, they're easily doing what they would have done in, in a five-day week, but in four days and on their own schedule. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in terms of benefiting our business, the, you know, we're a people first organization. And so the, the, it's a mutual benefit, like they're, they're benefiting, we're benefiting, you know, in terms of the success of our business, our revenue has doubled, we've grown our market share, we've grown as a company. So I think we can deduce that this has been really successful for us. Yeah, good for you. It sounds great. So does government get involved in this? Should government get involved in this? Should they, what can they do to aid you in this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that whatever anyone can do, they should be doing like, if, if, you know, the Liberal Party um, decides that this is something that they want to pilot, I mean, they haven't really, you know, communicated any real parameters of it. So the, the fear of overpromising, under-delivering is, is definitely there. And it not being a one-size-fits-all, right? Like you, There's a lot of companies and industries where this doesn't make a lot of sense for, right? And, you know, we recognize that. And we don't think that it's something that you can do overnight and that everyone can do. But I think that whatever companies can be doing or governments can be doing or anyone with a real political political um, influence can be doing to better the lives of their employees, then absolutely. How has the global pandemic changed this discussion? Well, I think that it directly, um, you know, it goes directly to employee well-being and mental health. I think that's something that um, is more critical now than ever. And I think that we universally are experiencing 
so much change and so much, um, you know, uncertainty and, and, you know, we're grieving and we're, there's trauma and these are really important things. And I think that if we're expecting our, you know, employees to be performing at a, a really high level and at the same time, adapting and adopting all of this change, I think we really need to recognize that we ourselves as organizations and as companies need to change as well for the better. And in some ways, because of the pandemic, it's survival. I mean, they have to do that to survive. It, it's, it's sort of been forced on us, hasn't it? Absolutely. Jamie Savage with us, founder of the Leadership Agency, talking about a four-day we- uh, four work week. And uh, Jamie's company, the Leadership Agency, has made that happen. Uh, but obviously, lots of challenges and, uh, and the payoffs can be great. Jamie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. We all gather around the big round table to come together for a little kumbaya moment, as we all uh, love to do at 4.36 in the afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to you, crew. I hope you're all doing well today. Have, yeah, look at the beautiful day outside. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to start with uh, a little controversy. Uh, should the premier, Premier Doug Ford, apologize to immigrants? He said, I'll read the quote. Uh, you come here like every other new Canadian has come here. You work your tail off, said Ford. If you think you're coming to collect the dole, sit around. Not going to happen. Go somewhere else. You want to work? Come here. We have so much work. We can't keep up with it right now. Uh, who wants to start? Tad? Uh, I don't, I, should he apologize for that? No. And here's why. I think he wanted to say something that came out wrong and we all do it. Everything's no, no, really. He probably was talking about people maybe, uh, that are coming over here. Um, and he, I don't know. I, I just find, I understand what he was saying. It wasn't a slap in the face to people like my parents who came over or Diana's or Scott, as you say, we're all mm-hmm. immigrants. We're all children of immigrants and people come over and they worked hard. I, I think he probably didn't say what he wanted to say and apologize maybe just to say you know what here's what i wanted to say but to have and of course the way they do the opposition any opportunity <laughs> they're pounded on the team mr speaker you know what give uh, just let him let him speak he had an opportunity today didn't feel he had to apologize so can we move on my Diana? opinion I think, I don't know if it necessarily needs an apology. I think he needs to, like, maybe clarify what he was trying to say because it mm-hmm. didn't sound good. Like, hearing it, I was like, come on. Like, that's as soon not as I cool, heard, man. <laughs> as soon as I heard it, I thought, yeah, you're going to get in trouble for this. Yeah, I, I, it didn't come out right at all. And, I mean... It, if if I don't know if that's what he meant, because in in the past, he's always said, you know, how hardworking immigrants are in this country and how they built this country. So I don't know if that's exactly what he meant. But then I'm wondering, like, who is he talking to? Like, is there or do is there a group of people we don't know that are trying to come here that are insinuating they're not going to work? Like, I don't know what he was trying to say there. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But you're right. A clarification. That's what's needed. An apology. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it didn't sound good. That's all I know. (laughs) Well, should he apologize? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to take the outside stance here. I think he should apologize. Uh, My reasoning is beyond, you know, whether he intended to say something one way or not, because it was muddled, because it was confusing, because it did sound like he was scolding a particular group and uh, Diana's reaction of who are you talking to is there. 
Whatever the case is, you know, he goes on TV, he has an effect with what he says. If you don't say it clearly, you're going to have an effect. And that effect is what you apologize for. You know, it it's, it's doesn't yeah, always matter what your intent was. Sometimes you just got to own it and say, you know what? Here we go. It came out wrong. What's wrong yeah. with saying that? That's it. Yeah. No, you know, and I think you touched on a, an interesting point, Ted, in the sense that, uh, but so did Diana about, well, when you say a word or a sentence like this, a sentence like this, two sentences like this, who are you addressing? And I hadn't heard a thought of that angle before, Diana, but you bring up a very valid point. Um, who is the message directed at? Yeah. And that perhaps would assume that there's a, a large amount of people that come around and collect the dole and just sit around. Um, you know what? Maybe that's the perception. So perhaps address that. Uh, but again, I, I think that uh, Doug Ford has proven not to necessarily be uh, to be the, the best wordsmith uh, as far as politicians <laughs> over the last uh, well, last few months, years that he's been in in power. So uh, you know, I think this is low hanging fruit from the opposition. But I agree with you both. A clarification should probably come uh, as opposed to an apology. And, and apparently, my dog thinks the same. Yeah, All right, poll question. <laughs> a little <of> the upset. Day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, really. He's banging these ex backs. <laughs> Hanging the desk with his paw. Uh, are you in favor of the four-day work week? And we talked about this the other day, but, you know, I, I think the clarification comes, would you take less pay to work one less day? I mean, I think we'd all would take, oh, yeah, if you want to give me what I got and I'll work four days. Who wouldn't take that? But would you take one less day of pay to work four days, Ted? Nope. I've worked too hard to get to where I am. And, yeah. a, and of course, no, really. Uh, but, yeah, I agree. But, but again... I'm in a much different situation because, as you know, December 15th, it's bye-bye. So you can't yeah. really ask me that question. Had you asked me this, oh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, the answer would have stayed no. Um, Four-day weeks are nice. We, you know, I, I was off yesterday. Last week we had Thanksgiving. You know, the problem with a four-day week is you come back on the Tuesday. Now you're running like heck. You're like a duck with the feet <laughs> underwater trying to get caught up with what you missed the other day. So then you get home stressed and tired. So <laughs> there's uh, no winning for Teddy. What do you think, Diana? I, I don't know. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my husband actually, uh, he used to do five days a week. And now he, since the start of the pandemic, has been doing four days a week. But the shifts are longer. Yeah. And I really like that. And he really likes that. Um, mm -hmm. And he says it doesn't really feel like much difference when he's there at work. But he really feels the difference of having three days off in a row, which is really nice. You yeah. know, it's interesting you position it that way because a uh, a company we just had on, an agency that is involved in a four-day work, it's because it's so intense 24-7 work. So they're working at all hours of the day. Then obviously, if you do that for five days a week, you're going to be fried. So they sell it as a three-day weekend. But again, the key is you're still doing the same amount of work. You're just abbreviating, abbreviating it into you know some sort of work-at-home arrangement, which I think the pandemic has sped all of this conversation up. Do you do you not agree, Will? Uh, yeah, no, the pandemic's definitely made us reconsider things. And I think, I don't know, I can't imagine a four-day work week, though, with our jobs here uh, at the radio station. And I, I do agree yeah. with Ted, yeah, about it being caught up. So, All right, last one here, vaccine hesitancy among kids. We're hearing, obviously, Pfizer and Health Canada working towards getting the uh, younger cohort vaccinated, 5 to 11 years of age. We're hoping for that by the holidays. Uh, do you think you're going to see more hesitancy among parents and kids than we are in the adult population? Say if we've got 85% in the adult, will we see that in the kids as well? 
well, Ted. Well, I'm sure there were some parents are thinking, does my child really need this? So will the mm-hmm. hesitancy come from the parents, as you say, or, or from the kids through their parents? Um, it's interesting, but, you know, we've, we're at um, 80% here locally, so hopefully that will carry on into the schools. However, uh, ages 5 to 11 is kind of a wide berth. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to get into the whole medical thing, but a 5-year-old? Uh, versus 11 discrepancy, you know, there, obviously. So I'm not quite sure that, uh, you know, five-year-old uh, is in as much danger, if you will. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I guess, it, like you said, it depends on the situation, whether it's yep. grandparents and such. Diana, what are your thoughts? I think there's going to be more hesitancy um, with regards to parents getting it. It's one thing, like Ted was saying, you know, for adults to get the mm-hmm. vaccine. Um, it's another thing to, you know, have your five-year-old get it. Uh, I don't know I, what people are going to do. I, I think there be there is definitely going to be a little bit more hesitancy just because of the medical, maybe some reactions that younger, very young kids have had. More so, like Ted was saying, maybe the five-year-old range as opposed to the 11-year-old. So I think we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I think it's going to be, you know, people are going to be like, well, is my kid going to be the first one? I don't know. Let's wait and see. I feel like yeah, there's really. gonna be, it's going to be slower, you know. Uh, interesting. Angus Reid did a poll on this. Over 50% said, yep, no problem right off the bat. Uh, 25% said, no way. And then the rest, we're going to wait and see. So it'll be interesting to see how it all uh, pans out. Thank you, Big Round Table. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We have talked a lot on this show over the over the weeks and months and year and a half of a global pandemic about supply chain management. Uh, not only now what we're seeing in goods, but at the very beginning of this with vaccine. And everybody was screaming, what about all the vaccine in the fridge? Check the fridge, Dougie. Remember that? Uh, of course, back then, we were getting a shipment of vaccine once every two weeks, once every week, if that was lucky, uh, maybe even later than that. So they would come in in a mass quantity, just like doing a, um, uh, a shopping on a Saturday, grocery shopping. Your fridge is full Saturday, Sunday, and then as you get it back around to Thursday or Friday, it starts to go down a bit. So uh, supply chain management works when... The product moves continuously, and we get a steady supply of product coming in, and then it gets distributed out the other end. Uh, but still, now the supply chain argument moves to uh, the holidays, and can we get what we need? Buying cars, buying appliances, you just can't get the stuff. Let's bring in Ron Foxcroft, Canadian businessman, Fox 40 world creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, author of 40 Ways of the Fox, and of course, CEO of Fluke Transport. He is with us now, and this article was in the Bay Observer, by the way. Uh, Ron, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well, and it's a pleasure to be on your show. And, you know, we started with that Tina Turner song, Simply the Best. You made uh, reference to the vaccines coming into Canada. If you remember, uh, there was no such a thing in March 2020 Mm -hmm. as vaccines, and we were also wanting them to come in. But, you know, Scott, they came into, the first vaccines came into Canada through John C. Monroe, Hamilton International Airport, the largest cargo airport in all of Canada. We should be Mm -hmm. very proud of, uh, as Hamiltonians, that the vaccines came into such a wonderful airport. 
So we've certainly in our hearing now, whatever you're buying, I mean, there, you know, there, there was the mad rush for things at the beginning of the pandemic, but now we're actually seeing the supply chain gaps in the supply chain. Uh, it seems that production was really only down for a couple or a few months at the beginning of this. Why are we still experiencing supply chain issues now? Well, Scott, I can tell you we're living it and there's no short term healing here. There's no short-term solution, and and you've heard the term patience is a virtue. This isn't going to be corrected quickly because I can can talk about that, living it as a trucker, as a logistics person, as a warehouse person, and as a manufacturing person at uh, Fox 40. We service uh, 140 countries from our manufacturing plant in Hamilton. But, you know, there's, there's no one thing Scott, but but I'll tell you this, there's sea containers out on the ports in Vancouver and Los Angeles that are backed up for weeks. Uh, There's a tremendous labor shortage that can't deal with those containers and get them onto trucks. The other thing, Scott, that um, your, your listeners may not be aware of, but many trucking companies, including us, can't get drivers to put into the trucks. Currently, yeah. right now in Canada, there's an 18,000-person shortage of truck drivers to go into fleets. As a result, many trucking companies have taken up to 30% of their fleet, parked the trucks because they can't get drivers to get into the trucks. The other problem with the labor shortage, plants can't produce fast enough to meet the needs of the necessities of people in Canada, and now companies, manufacturing companies, such as Fox 40 and other manufacturing companies are on product allocation. Example, um, we need cardboard, we need corrugated, we need paper, Mm -hmm. we need rosin, we, we need plastic, and many manufacturing companies right now are on allocation, and I know a manufacturing company right now are getting 28% 28% of their allocation of a corrugated cardboard. So if you talk to those on the opposite side of the political spectrum, those on the left, they will say, Ron, we'll just pay those people more, pay those truck drivers more, pay those manufacturers more. That's not easy, Scott, because, you know, companies have to make a profit. Companies, you know, companies aren't making a profit to go buy a sailboat and sail around the Caribbean. Companies are making a profit, too, so that they can make an investment in capital improvement, HR investment, training, safety, health, and so on, at technology. Technology today, investment in technology today is vital in your business. So, you know... Employees are hardworking, and they deserve a, a, a working, livable wage. What some people don't understand is life of an entrepreneur. Life of an entrepreneur, you know, you start your day at 5 in the morning, you, you finish, if you're lucky, at 9 at night, and it's seven days all-inclusive. And the company has to be turn a profit so they can pay these wages and make these investments in the areas that I just described. Uh, many thought that when the pandemic would come to an end, that it would be like the Roaring Twenties again. Do you think we're going to see that, or is it going to be a gradual comeback? I, it's, it needs some time, Scott. I'll give you a problem that, that the media doesn't talk about right now. 
there's a real shortage and allocation of public warehousing. For example, you need warehouses to store groceries and necessities of life. Right now, we're using warehouses and, and big volumes of warehouses to store PPE products such as sanitizer mm. and, and plastic shields and masks and so on. Scott, pre-2020, we didn't use large volumes of warehouses to store PPE products to deal with a workplace that needs to upscale with all this special equipment. For example, in our warehouse, we have a hundred, hundreds of thousands of square feet of PPE products that used to be used for groceries and necessities of life. Mm. So right now in the mm. GTHA, there's a terrible shortage of good warehouse space because you just can't build 200,000 square feet like it's pitching a tent. Hmm. Man, this is such a multi-layered onion, isn't it? I mean, there's so it many is. factors involved here. Uh, Ron Foxcroft with us, Canadian businessman, Fox 40 World, creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, author of 40 Ways of the Fox, and CEO of Fluke Transport, talking about supply issues. And uh, this is obviously going to last for a while. Ron, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for your time. Alberta has been in the news a lot lately, uh, especially over this global pandemic. And um, and not only that, whether it's them coping with COVID-19, whether it is their energy industry, which has uh, pretty much collapsing, and then uh, the future for Albertans. Uh, what happens next? We were talking just yesterday about how uh, the uh, what the office rate vacancy was in uh, Alberta as a result of uh, their economic situation over the last couple of years. Uh, now, uh, Alberta going through provincial elections and municipal elections, rather, and it looks like Albertans have voted to remove equalization from the Canadian Constitution. What does this all mean? Now, obviously, the final vote will not be available for a number of days but let's bring in peter gray professor of political science mcmaster university he is with us now thank you peter hope you're doing well yes thank you so uh, what does this vote mean explain to us what happened today uh well uh i mean ultimately uh, alberta held a referendum as part of their municipal elections yesterday and one of the, the questions was whether uh Albertan supported uh changing the constitution to remove the equalization provisions and uh, if they vote yes, as it seems like they will, to, to remove them, I mean, what this probably means in terms of previous Supreme Court decisions is that there's a responsibility on the other provinces in the federal government uh, to meet with Alberta and to negotiate this. Um, you know, but that's probably about as far as it's going to get when all is said and done, because it's not clear that there's anywhere near the number of provinces uh, in favor of removing uh, equalization from the Constitution. And in fact, even if they did, it wouldn't necessarily mean the end of our, our existing equalization program, which again moves money around the country to ensure all provinces, uh, whether they're rich or poor, can offer relatively similar uh, programs at similar levels of taxation. Um, because ultimately, we had the equalization program from 1957 to 1982 when it was added to the Constitution. So all it would mean is that rather than that you know, program being more or less constitutionally protected, it could be changed by a future government. But again, uh, you know, it certainly was not uh, ever in danger between 1957 and 1982. So even changing the Constitution, if that was to happen, would probably have no impact on whether we had such a program or not. 
You uh, talked about equalization and, and kind of explained that basically that money coming into every province uh, is equal so that they can all provide the same sort of services. Uh, that's basically what equalization is all about. How has this been unfair for Alberta? Uh, well, I mean, I think Albertans see it as unfair in the sense that given uh, how, you know, they're sitting on a pot of oil ultimately and it's produced, uh, you know, high rates of wealth. Uh, Alberta has been, you know, the richest province for a long period of time. Uh, and so since 1957, uh, you know, it's only qualified for equalization eight times and, and not since the 1960s. And so from the Albertan point of view, uh, there's been a flow of money through Alberta's taxes to the federal government, which has then been passed on to other provinces through this equalization program. And, you know, ultimately the argument that is that it's unfair that they always have to pay uh, and that sense of unfairness, I think, came really to the fore, given the really tough economic situation that you point out, that, you know, they've been going through high rates of unemployment, the meltdown of uh, the oil industry, um, and yet they uh, don't qualify for equalization funds. So there's a sense that in their moment of need, the program isn't there. I mean, of course, the reason they didn't qualify is that, you know, even with all those problems, they still have more capacity to raise taxes uh, than any other province. So... You know, on the one hand, they f- they're feeling the pain and wondering, you know, where's, where's the support? I suspect in other parts of the country, it's a bit like someone who, you know, falls on hard times and has to sell one of their two Lamborghinis, uh, you know, while you're driving a Honda Civic. Uh, you, you may see, the, see that kind of unfairness a bit differently. Uh, is there really that much wealth in Alberta? You know, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, this is the energy industry, and I guess when they have uh, when they have successful times, they're very successful. But is their argument valid that they have been giving to money, giving money to uh, the other provinces when times are doing well in the oil patch? Now that they're not doing well, they should be given something in return. Is that is is that not a valid question, or is the answer to that question, well, you people aren't taxing your people enough? and that's why you're asking us for more. Well, I mean, I think that would, be, that would be part of the response. I mean, ultimately, you know, the money actually isn't being sent, you know, from the Alberta government to the other provinces. It's that we all as Canadians... No, it goes through the then, feds, yeah. You know, we, we pay our taxes, and, uh, you know, then the federal government has this program to try and equalize that capacity. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you, the, it's kind of hard to hide uh, these things because it's a mathematical formula which actually, you know, determines... Uh, you know, whether one is eligible for the program or not. And again, you know, according to that, if your province has above average capacity to raise tax revenues, uh, you don't receive equalization. And even in its hardest times, Alberta is above that. Even if oil revenues are relatively low, there's, you know, a large number of people with well-paying jobs, uh, you know, and so the capacity to raise income taxes, or if they had a sales tax, the sense of what that would raise uh, would be considerable compared to a place like Nova Scotia or, or PEI. It remains, though, that in a province like that, uh, you know, where you are so reliant on oil industries, you'll see these big swings, and there yeah. may be a role for another federal program called stabilization, uh, you know, to help provinces that get faced with a kind of a big year-over-year fall in their capacity to raise revenues. And so, I mean, one response to the federal government and the other provinces has been to actually revisit that program and see is there a way that it can be, uh, the formula can be changed so that it helps a province like Alberta in a situation like this. So I suspect part of the conversation when, you know, Alberta says we've got this referendum, uh, the Supreme Court says you've got to negotiate, is to say, well, we've already actually been, you know, responding to the situation that you had. 
Uh, and I suspect the other response will be that, you know, we put equalization in the Constitution in 1982 around a series of quid pro quos. Alberta, do you really want to revisit those? You know, and one of those was certainly giving the provinces much greater control over their natural resource revenues. So, you know, Alberta, even there, may have an interest in not negotiating too hard because it might unravel, you know, some of those trade-offs. And it's mm. not clear that they actually want to, to trade off their control over the natural resource revenues simply to get rid of equalization in the Constitution. Obviously, as you mentioned, this cannot be changed easily uh, and is unlikely to happen. So what's the message that Alberta is sending here? How will it be received? How does this move forward? Well, I mean, I think they are sending the message that they feel that uh, in their time of need, uh, the rest of the country didn't respond. Uh, I think the rest of the country is going to say, uh, you know, we see that you're hurting. And we did start making moves around things like stabilization and trying to find ways uh, you know, of dealing with the dislocation in Alberta. Um, ultimately, I think the referendum in, in, is a pretty aggressive move, and in that way, it may actually have reduced some of the goodwill that we were already seeing from the other provinces and the federal government to revisit these things. Uh, you know, again, a, a referendum, uh, you know, in Quebec, someone once called it a knife to the throat. Uh, when, you know, if it's your throat that the knife is being put to, uh, you maybe don't respond that kindly. And so, in this instance, I think Premier Kennedy has some tough decisions to make. Does he really want to push this? Uh, you know, it's popular. It plays really well in Alberta, this idea that Alberta is getting uh, hosed by the rest of the country or getting ripped off or that no one's listening to them. But uh, it could be pretty dangerous for him, I think, to be negotiating these things because uh, he's going to, I think, quickly run through what goodwill he's finding in the rest of the country. Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about Alberta wanting to remove equalization payments from the Canadian Constitution. Doesn't look like there'll be much of that uh, chance of that happening anytime soon. Peter, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember during the election campaign, uh, the prime minister, uh, after calling the election that no one wanted, uh, looking for his majority, he said we were going to build back better. This was a line he stole from uh, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden in the United States. That was Biden's uh, line saying he was going to build highways, bridges, infrastructure, and such. However, w- w- we really don't know what Build Back Better means for uh, Justin Trudeau. And there's an interesting article in the National Post uh, this week from John Iveson, uh, how uh, Justin Trudeau wasted a chance to spark a Canadian economic growth during this pandemic. And to talk more about all of this, Jake Fuss is with us, senior economist the Fraser Institute, and is with us now. Jake, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, the Prime Minister said during the campaign, building back better, we know this was a Biden line. Do we know what this means? What what does build back better mean? I, I guess the same thing, but with the environment in mind? Yeah, certainly. I think it can have different interpretations um, based on what you're talking about. But in general, they're generally talking about infrastructure, um, you know, generally higher levels of spending, uh, more government involvement in the economy. Um, but, you know, what we see in our research uh, right now is that we're at record spending levels in Canadian history, really at uh, on per person basis um, at over $13,000. And that's 35 percent higher than we, what we saw the government spent before COVID in 2019. So we're spending, but not necessarily on things we need to be spending, uh, spending on, including building back better. 
Yeah, well, part of the problem is what we saw, you know, before COVID even, um, we were already spending at record levels back then, um, but that didn't necessarily translate into a stronger economy at the time. You know, we saw meager results in growth um, in the economy. Um, we also saw declines in business investment, which is important for innovation and the economy in general. Um, we also had poor job creation. Um, so between about 2015 and 2019, um, we only had... Uh, about half the rate of job creation compared to what we saw during the Mulroney or Cretchen years in government. Um, so it's certainly not the results that we wanted to see, especially at a time when you have record high spending. You would expect you know, better economic results if you're going to be spending that money, um, but it didn't necessarily translate into those results. So we're spending the money and not getting the results. What are we spending the money on? I mean, is that just recovering from the pandemic or are these just bad ideas? Well, you know, I think part of the problem, too, um, not only before the pandemic, but after um, as we're transitioning into that, a lot of the spending is not necessarily put into um, things like infrastructure. It's actually put into new programs and expansions to things, um, you know, that new programs in general. Um, so it's not necessarily going into things that are actually improving economic growth. Um, so it, it might not actually be helping the economy as much as we might expect because um, it's not necessarily going into economic recovery. Um, it might be going into longer term things um, that are just kind of racking up debt, um, adding to our spending load. Uh, it seems with this prime minister, it's more about a feeling than it is about an attitude, more than it is about policy, uh, more than policy that will build things. Is that accurate? Why are we focusing on uh, how we feel and social issues as opposed to moving ourselves forward and providing economic growth that will just make life better anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. Ultimately, you know, I think it comes down to the importance of having that conversation as a country about why economic growth is so important. And the reason why it is actually important is because it leads to a greater standard of living for all Canadians. Um, you know, it leads to things like job creation, growth in incomes for Canadians so they can afford more of what they want to buy um, and having good jobs. So ultimately, you know, I think it's kind of about having a conversation as a country about what we actually want to do um, and how we want to actually grow the economy. Because um, right now we need a proper plan, a long-term strategy to try to get more economic growth. Are we scared of development? Are we scared of building things? It seems we've lost that. You know, on a provincial level, I remember uh, former Premier McGuinty saying, I'm not interested in building any highways. And that was like 20 some odd years ago, uh, which really, in the end of the day, doesn't get you anywhere. Are, have, has building become a bad word? It's a good question. I mean, ultimately, on infrastructure in particular, the, the real difficulty, too, is you're coordinating between three levels of government. So you've got yeah. the local, provincial, and federal levels of government all you know disagreeing on what's the priority where the money's going um it ultimately takes a long process you know you have permitting times you have environmental assessments um you know so part of the issue is actually just getting these projects done in the first place um there's a lot of bureaucracy involved so that can you know delay projects and on the infrastructure issue especially with economic recovery part of the problem is that a lot of these projects don't even get started until well after the recovery has already begun or is well underway um, so we might actually be overstimulating the economy if we're doing infrastructure projects at a time when the economy is doing well. Um, so it's kind of a, an issue, you know, back there about whether or not or what time you're actually doing the infrastructure projects um, and what projects you're actually doing. Many thought that when this pandemic ended or we got to the end of it, that we would see the roaring 20s. Things would just take off. Are, do you see that? 
Uh, it's difficult to, to tell what, you know, what we're going to see kind of in that new normal, as, as people are saying, um, you know, as we emerge out of COVID. Um, you know, the, the difficulty I see, you know, right now is that, you know, we are kind of repeating the same mistakes we made before COVID, you know, again, with this mm. record level of government spending um, that didn't translate into a strong economy before. So, you know, it's really worth asking, you know, what's going to be different this time if we're just kind of repeating those same mistakes um, you know, are we going to see income growth for Canadians? Are we going to see job creation above what we were seeing before? So right now, you know, I, I don't see that much to be optimistic on based on the fact that we're kind of repeating the past mistakes. But obviously, you know, things can change over time as well. Jake Fuss with a senior economist with the Fraser Institute. As we exit a pandemic, are we starting to see the strong growth that everybody uh hoped for are we in fact building back better jake thanks for the time and insight much appreciated be well thanks very much for having me on thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com as always on hamilton today we leave it to you the good listenership to have the last word yeah i'm all for a four-day work week but only if you can give me four-hour shifts to go with it. Hey! <laughs> That's all right.